0: Welcome to the next episode of our SESEC podcasts. My name is Robert Hudek and today I'm with Associate Professor Gabor Skolicki from the Semmelweis University in Budapest. And he's the clinical deputy clinical director of the orthopedic clinic there. And today, together with Gabor, we, we have a paper to discuss. It has been picked by the Education Committee of the SESEC because uh, we think it's very interesting. And it's the role of plasty. So the title of the study is The Role of Arthroscopic Glenoidplasty and Osteocapsular arthroplasty in the Treatment of Advanced Glenohumeral Arthritis. And what they did was they did arthroscopy in cases of osteoarthritis for advanced staged cases. Gabor, can, can you give us some more insights into this into this abstract and this study?
1: Yes, it is my pleasure to give you some, uh, some extra information on that. So hello, Robert, and hello to all the listeners. Yes, this paper was picked by us by the Education Committee because uh, I think it is one of the most controversial papers that we have read among all. Uh, the uh, authors have... Evaluated almost 70 patients with uh, with an osteoarthritis. Now this is my first question, Robert, and uh, probably we should ask the authors about that because they picked almost seven patients, but not with the same pathology. Because uh, part of them uh, had uh, primary osteoarthritis, part of them had instability arthropathy, which in my opinion different. And they have also said that there were patients where they needed to do uh, glenoid blast because the, uh, because they have a big biconcave glenoid, which means in my opinion this is a b1 b2 osteoarthritis osteoarthritis, and in my opinion this is a little bit different from a concentric osteoarthritis, so I think they were treating three different kind of uh, patients anyway. Uh, What they have done is they performed uh, arthroscopy, they have performed uh, osteocapsular arthroplasty, which means that they removed practically the osteophytes, and they have also done uh, a capsulotomy, and when it was needed, they have performed uh, glenoidplasty. Uh, After a follow-up time of six years, which is pretty long, I guess, they have evaluated the patients, and uh, the results were surprisingly good, in my opinion. Uh, they say that only twenty-five percent uh, of the patients did not perceive any improvement, but seventy-five percent of the patients experienced improvement, which re- reached its uh, maximal point at uh, at a medium of uh, twelve months. What do you think about that, Robert?
0: Well, it's it's, it's amazing. It's amazing, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, 75% of these cases with um, advanced stage clinical arthritis of different kinds of arthritis, the one where maybe a little bit more B2s, the other one's more centric. So I don't know if we can draw uh, a clear line here. But still, and when you read the results, I mean, listen to that. There's 75% who, who perceived improvement And the maximal improvement was reached at a medium of 12 months. So you do this operation, then you have to wait a year. And then 75% of the cases you do are improved. And how much do they improve? Well, the the authors write that 63% were greatly improved and 27%, this is a third, right? So a third of these are almost normal. It's it's unbelievable. And... uh, one percent, uh, one one case, two percent are normal. So I think this is really this is really amazing. And and then they write, okay, how how long does this last? Is this only a very short
1: improvement,
0: or is it something for a longer time?
1: Yes, they are it here because if you see the maximum improvement was after twelve months, but uh, the median delay for a shoulder replacement was thirteen years. Thirteen years. Yes, exactly. This is what is written here, which is quite a long time. Now, there's one more thing which is quite interesting for me, because they said that uh, all radiographic follow-up showed a concentric joint without progressive glenoid erosion, which means that probably they were also able to stop the posterior static subluxation of a humeral head, uh, which is uh, one of probably the most challenging problems now in the young... Uh, patients with uh, shoulder arthritis they say that most of the uh, failed patients were over 65 years or those who had dislocation arthropathy so probably we should uh, listen to them see their opinion and uh, make some attention or pay some attention to those uh, to those no i'm absolutely i'm absolutely curious
0: so let's jump into the interviews and listen what the authors do have to tell us let's do that so uh, welcome everybody to our next session of uh, the sesec podcast and we are uh, having a new paper here and I'm very glad to have the authors uh, Jorge Rojas Lievano and Sean O'Driscoll from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, USA. And they've presented a very interesting study to us which is called The Role of Arthroscopic Glenoid Plasty and Osteocapsular Arthoplasty in the Treatment of Advanced Glenohumeral Arthritis. Can you explain us what exactly is meant with this?
2: Yes. Well, the advanced glenohumeral arthritis or glenohumeral arthritis um, is, I think, self-evident. We're talking about patients not with mild OA, but with advanced OA, who would be candidates for shoulder replacement. Uh, glenoid plasty or glenoid plasty refers to the reshaping of a biconcave glenoid into a single concavity. And osteocapsular arthroplasty refers to working on bone and capsule, the bony part to remove osteophytes around the humeral head, and the uh, capsular part to release the anterior, inferior, and superior, at least the anterior capsule uh, to restore mobility.
0: You are looking on a time span of 22 years. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So... Um, With this technique, did you see any improvements during these 22 years of doing it, some technical issues?
2: Oh, yes, for sure. uh, We did. Um, When I started doing this in 1995, there was no um, track record on which to base the approach to this, apart from what I had been doing in the elbow uh, for years before that. And so um, it was a gradual learning experience to develop this technique. Uh, It's a difficult technique uh, to do. And so I think key developments were learning how to get uh, sufficient exposure and space within which to work inside the shoulder, particularly in the axillary recess, which is occupied by the large osteophytes. Um, Additionally, uh, being able to get uh, quite a substantial amount of work done within a reasonable period of time before swelling would occur and also how to uh, keep safe with respect to not injuring the axillary nerve.
0: And uh, we have uh, um, another specialist here, which is Roger Emery from the Imperial College in London. And uh, Roger is a, he's a, he's a true expert in shoulder and elbow surgery as well as you are. And, um, Roger, did you do something similar in your career? No,
3: uh, never such advanced um, uh, uh, arthroscopic, um, certainly not glenoplasty, capsular release, obviously, and the occasional removal of an osteophyte, but nothing more than that. But, Robert, thank you for inviting me to sort of moderate this. Um, and, Sean, great to see you on the um, uh, on the podcast. And, uh, Jorge, I enjoyed your presentation a lot. I mean, I think you must have been very gratified by the results of this procedure, particularly at a time when therapeutic arthroscopy has come a little bit under the spotlight. Um, So, you know, the fact that you've got impressive results with 75% of patients doing well and only a quarter effectively failing uh, is very, very encouraging. And what's more, it seems that they were good for four years, and even at eleven years, they were still performing quite well. I think one of my questions is: this is this is interesting. How do you recruit patients for this? Because if you look at your study, you recruited over a period of twenty-three years, and the total number was only sixty-seven. So I would be interested to know, and it's probably Sean is probably the best person to uh, ask this to is how do you decide whether these patients are suitable? I mean, this must be a small cohort compared to your practice.
2: Yes, Roger, that's quite correct. Um, it is a small cohort. Um, first, they um they were not recruited specifically, no one was invited, uh, shall we say, to participate in a study. Uh, but rather these all were patients who were referred to me for total shoulder arthroplasty they had all of the indications for total shoulder arthroplasty including severe functional impairment and pain and severe uh, advanced um, radiographic evidence of arthritis with half of them or so having a b2 glenoid as well so having said that um the patients who underwent this procedure were those who had a strong contraindication to undergoing total shoulder arthroplasty at the same time as having the indications. And so a typical example early on was somebody who was young and still extremely high demand on the shoulder in whom uh, certainly in the 1990s, many of us would have simply just not done a total shoulder arthroplasty. We would have told them there really isn't very much we can do. And I reasoned based on what I had been doing in the elbow with osteocapsular arthroplasty for advanced OA, that although the general thinking at the time, 25 years ago, was that um, arthroscopy would probably not be helpful, there was no true um, evidence that these extensive procedures had actually been done to know that they wouldn't work. We knew that simple debridements did not seem to be effective but we didn't know that an extensive osteocapsular arthroplasty and particularly with a glenoid plasty added to it would not be effective. And so um, in the first few years, uh, if a patient would ask if, would ask if there's anything else that could be done, um, the discussion came up that the possibility exists of doing an arthroscopic procedure, which we described to them, of course. And uh, early on, of course, we did not know how successful it would be. And so it was put to those patients who were interested that if they believed that they had to do something, but shoulder arthroplasty was simply not an option, and if they felt that having done something, which would be this procedure, that if it did not work, they would be glad that they had tried that, would not feel that that had been a mistake, but they would be glad that they had tried that, then I felt that they were... Uh, A suitable candidate. And there was one final criteria which I looked for in the patients early on, although in our study we were not able to prove that it was a prognostic factor, but I, I did think it might have been relevant. And that was that when I would test external rotation strength and they would resist me and I would overcome that, they would often get this squeaking, this grinding in the joint that you get when you do that test. And if that particular grinding was not associated with a spike in pain, then I felt that the pain was probably not coming from the joint surface itself, and so perhaps they did not need plastic and metal, but rather they needed dealing with the soft tissues around the joint and the osteophytes that were impinging and the limitation of motion.
3: Because from your study, you clearly show that dislocation arthropathy is probably a contraindication uh, as a as a etiology, and furthermore, it, it does seem to be better under the sixty-five-year-old.
2: Yes. Yes, yes. So, so the younger age uh, was, you know, we started out, that was clearly the, the patient population for whom this was um, thought to be suitable was the younger age. Um, I did do it for some patients with dislocation arthropathy. In fact, one of the very first patients and one with one of the best results, in fact, was a patient with uh, what was thought to be dislocation arthropathy at the time. And, uh, and he actually did very well and had um, almost 10 years of an excellent result from that. But overall, that group did not do as well as the patient with primary OA.
3: I suppose inevitably one has to ask the question, you know, what is the cause of our patient's pain? Uh, we see a lot of people with terrible x-rays and terrible creaky shoulders yes. and coping very well. Yes. Uh, and yeah. in, the, in an operation that's been successful, which is largely a synovectomy and a capsular procedure, is it possible that a high pressure effusion and synovial proliferation is something we should be looking for on an MRI scan. And that could be uh, um, the red flag that we should be doing this procedure
2: rather than a simple joint replacement. I don't know if you saw a high uh, pressure effusion. Yes. Well, you bring up a very important point, Roger, that, um, Uh, we have to ask the question of what is causing the pain. I don't think we know in the majority of cases what is actually causing the pain. But as you pointed out, we do know a couple of things for sure. There are very few things about which 100% of orthopedic surgeons agree on, but one of them is that you cannot tell by looking at an X-ray if the patient has pain. And another is that if the X-ray shows severe arthritis and another X-ray shows mild arthritis, you can't tell necessarily if the patient with the more severe arthritis has more severe pain either. I think we would all agree on that. And so if you can have severe arthritis on x-ray and have no pain, it should be possible to have severe arthritis on x-ray and have pain coming from something other than the joint surfaces. And if that's the case, then we may not need to, in fact, replace the joint surfaces to deal with their pain. And, And this study clearly documents that to be the case. Now, as to exactly what does cause the pain, unfortunately, I don't think we know. I don't know for sure, but I do uh, strongly suspect that it is principally in the periarticular soft tissues, as you mentioned, the synovitis that every one of these patients had, um, and the, um, the stretching of those soft tissues over osteophytes, the irregular movement of those tissues, the shearing that occurs with joint motion, uh, and in some cases, of course, the tightness of those soft tissues due to contracture and osteophyte formation.
3: And I suppose following on from that, is it reasonable to suggest that the obligatory translation, the dynamic aspects of posterior wear and the development of biconcavity may stimulate synovitis and capsular changes?
2: I think that's a very reasonable uh, hypothesis. Uh, I I think it it, it's fairly well recognized that any joint that is chronically subluxated um, and persistently incongruous is likely to have secondary so-called arthritic changes with the synovitis and, and uh, soft tissue inflammation. So I think that that is indeed likely, Roger. And probably
3: a question for Jorge, um, uh,
2: because he obviously uh, reviewed them. Um, the
3: radiological improvement that you described, how did you assess that? What criteria? Was that just plain x-ray, any metrics at all or grading systems?
4: Yeah. So for the improvement, we use the subjective outcome determination score, which is a, a score developed by Dr. Dr. Driscoll at the Mayo Clinic. And it's a categorical score where the patients are uh, rate their improvement compared to before surgery, as uh, worse, no improvement, uh, improve, greatly improve, almost normal or normal. So we use that uh, rating score to assess uh, the result. And we define a failed outcome, those patients that didn't have any improvement uh, or were worse, after their surgery and the patients who had any improvement, but the improvement lasts less than a year.
3: But in your um, talk, you describe how the radiological changes improved. And actually there's quite a nice image where you show essentially a posterior sublux shoulder returning to a fairly concentric pattern of arthritis. I mean, that's one example, but did you measure that on any form of grading system And obviously, the question is, how accurate is that measurement?
4: Yeah, for uh, radiographic measurements, we use uh, the radiographs that we had available. We didn't have radiographs for all the cohort, but definitely uh, there is uh, limitations for measuring the medialization of the joint line in plain radiographs because uh, it's difficult to have the same uh, projection over time. So what we did is that we created a categorical system and we use uh two different raters to evaluate if we uh subjectively considered that there was significant medialization of the humeral head compared to the anterior to the uh, with the reference of a line crossing the anterior and posterior glenoid rims and um, but definitely that is a limitation of the method ideally that required to be measured with a CT scan, but we didn't have CT scan in all the patients. However, in a small proportion of patients, we had CT scans, especially in those patients who were converted to shoulder arthroplasty, they had preoperative uh, CT scans. And in those cases, we could measure uh, the change. And actually, in those cases, we didn't see uh, a significant increase of erosion over time.
3: And could you say what the humeral side looked like on those CT scans? Because presumably, returning the sphericity of the humeral head is likely to be important in terms of preventing further posterior wear. And I imagine that the more aggressive you are in removing the osteophytes, the more chance you have to change a mushroom-shaped humeral head to something that is more anatomical.
4: Yeah, so uh, in some of the cases that we had CT scan were cases that underwent glenoidplasty and were cases that had a biconcave glenoid before the arthroscopic procedure. And in those cases, uh, the glenoid was monoconcave and was uh, centered. We think that the results of the glenoplasty are encouraging. However, we cannot make a big statement about that. And that is why we didn't put like a big conclusion on that because we didn't have CT scans for all the patients. But in the patients that we had the CT scan, uh, it seems that the correction of the uh by concavity it's effective and it's long lasting
3: i mean you showed quite nicely how the procedure is done uh, and certainly getting rid of that central um ridge um clearly over the 23 years there must be quite a learning curve um but i suppose the question i would like to ask now is in terms of the sort of recent practice it's a difficult procedure as you admitted to were there cases where you had to abort the procedure or just failed to carry out the surgical plan. I mean, uh, maybe Sean probably can answer that. You know, if you're starting this from afresh, would you would you recommend our colleagues to not get too despondent if they um, struggle with some cases, um, and certainly the the
2: learning curve? Yes, that's that's a good question, Roger. Um, once I did have to abort the procedure, and that was not early on. That was uh, in the in the latter 25% of cases, it's just a couple of years ago or so. It was an exceedingly difficult um, case. It was a revision of one I had done before. And um, I did uh, partway into it, I did feel I am, I am just not able to do this. And so I boarded the procedure. That patient went on to have a total shoulder arthroplasty. Um, it is extremely difficult. I describe this procedure as technically the most difficult operation that I do. So, of anything that I do, in the shoulder or the elbow, anything whatsoever, arthroscopic or open surgery, this is the one that demands the highest level of technical skill from me.
0: I was really wondering um, these technical steps. So because concerning your pretty amazing results, I could imagine that many colleagues would like to start with it. So I was asking if you can give us um, the major steps or, or how to say, the key steps in this procedure to, uh, to look for and to uh, to make it good?
2: Yes, I'll try to do that. Um, in part, if one is starting out early on, you would like to focus on the part of, or parts of the operation that are most likely to be contributing to pain relief, as Roger asked earlier. And although we don't know what that is, I, I do suspect that a key part is the synovectomy. So I would say that dealing with the synovitis is probably um, a key strategy early on. And um, normally with synovectomy, say in a rheumatoid joint, we would use a shaver to remove that synovium and cauterize wherever we need to with the um, radiofrequency device. But that doesn't work very well in these cases because they bleed severely when you uh, debride the synovium with a shaver. And pretty soon, all you can see is blood. So I've learned that what I have to do is um, I have to do most of the synovectomy with a radiofrequency device with a combination of ablation and cautery, ablation and cautery, not just one or the other. And um, that doesn't fully get rid of the synovium. But when I've cauterized enough of the synovium, then I'll actually shave and remove that cauterized synovium that's been partly ablated. And of course, it'll bleed somewhat more. And so I'll have to put the the cautery back in and and cauterize where it was bleeding. Um, So that's a key strategy, I think, uh, to know. Be prepared to deal with bleeding. Um, Have a high outflow. I keep a cannula in the front of the shoulder with the uh, cannula open to the floor to drain so I can have a high outflow going through without causing swelling. And it's critical in this operation that you don't allow swelling to occur before somewhere near the very end of the operation, because once it swells, it it becomes close to impossible to continue to work. So start in the front uh, at the top, and do a synovectomy in the rotator interval area, uh, all on the anterior capsule superiorly there. And as soon as possible, start releasing The uh, rotator interval and the superior anterior superior capsule that starts to create space in the joint. Now, having said that, um, sometimes the most difficult part is actually getting into the joint. So it's quite embarrassing. Uh, I'll admit it has uh, on occasion taken me well over 10 minutes to get into the joint. I don't think that happens under any other circumstances ever. Uh, It's usually, you know, instant that you're in a joint. Um, And so the strategies, if I can't get into the joint, are as follows. I try to go in with a switching stick at the back rather than uh, going in with the cannula and the obturator because it's a bit smaller. If I can't get in at the back, I go in at the front with a um, smooth gray, uh, one of the old Concept Limvotec cannulas that has no little uh, ring around the mouth of it at the opening, so it goes in smoothly. And if you have muscle memory for putting the cannula in the anterior superior portal there at the front, then you just simply recreate that and allow the relatively soft plastic of this cannula to force its way in between the humeral head and the glenoid. And that will open up the space a bit. Then you can look in from from that position and introduce a switching stick from the back under direct vision, and then switch your scope around and come in at the back. It Sounds like a lot of details, but to be honest, that's where some of the procedures are going to be aborted, right there, where you can't even get into the joint.
3: Uh, just a quick question, um, a rather European question, really. Uh, you don't cut the long head of biceps? Um,
2: no, I rarely, rarely <laughs> have cut the long head of biceps, actually. Early on with this procedure, I decided that I was not going to do anything other than synovectomy, capsulotomy, osteophyte removal, and reshape the glenoid if it was biconcave. Because I I thought that if I got in there and I did generalized procedures like biceps tenotomies and acromioplasties and so on, um, I wouldn't know if um, what I was doing for the arthritic changes was responsible for pain relief. And I thought that I would rather find out if this doesn't work, I'd rather know that. Or if it requires a biceps tenotomy in order to work, I'd rather learn that and just do a biceps tenotomy alone. So the overwhelming majority of these procedures were very, very crisp, clean procedures in terms of what was done. It wasn't a general package of clean up the whole thing. Um, so the rotator cuff was uh, in some cases it was uh, involved, but not very often. If it was, it was minimally debrided. They did not do a acromioplasties. At least we excluded the ones in which any of those were done. And so um, would it help if we did biceps tenotomies? Uh, it, it might. Uh, I, I don't know, uh, Roger. I, I can't say that for sure.
3: I, my last question, really, is um, the a couple of observations. One, there's really no difference whether you do a glenoplasty or not in terms of results. Yes, uh, that is correct, isn't it? And I suppose the other thing is the the title of the talk. Uh, this is not a, a serious criticism. Does imply that this is a study of glenoplasty? It's actually a study of capsulectomy and synovectomy with 50-50 having a glenoplasty. So the question, I suppose, is the glenoplasty, which seems totally logical and certainly in terms of the radiological appearance and improvement, uh, which is important for future joint replacement, um, uh, is desirable, but whether it really made a difference, and whether it's the other two elements of the procedure that's helped.
2: Right. Um, there are um, some things, you know, in a in a long term experience like this, uh, you can't really put all the details in there. But this procedure actually started out as glenoid plasty without the other components. So the first three or maybe it was five patients I did, I only did glenoid plasties. I didn't do osteophyte removal. I didn't do capsulotomies. I just did plasty and a localized Um, Then I started thinking when I saw somebody without the biconcave glenoid, I wondered if I could treat that by the osteocapsular arthroplasty. And so this represents a, a combination of two patient populations. And given that uh, a biconcave glenoid is thought to be a negative prognostic indicator for response to arthroscopic treatment, and given as well that the presence of a biconcave glenoid sometimes you know leads to decisions, for example, to do a reverse arthroplasty, which is a significant decision. Um, I think it's particularly relevant that that patient population here did just as well. Now, would they have done well if we had ignored the biconcave glenoid? Uh, I don't know. I did not ignore a biconcave glenoid in anybody. So I always did a glenoid plasty if the glenoid was biconcave. Um, And I assume that it probably contributes, although I I can't separate that out from the other factors. So for now, I guess we don't really know. Uh, What we do know is that the package deal, so to speak, um, seemed to work quite favorably in those patients. And uh, so I think that if you had one patient in particular in a practice that is normally um, managed by total shoulder arthroplasty for advanced OA, I would say if there's one patient in particular in whom you might want to consider this, I would say it'd be the patient who is young, very active, primary OA with a biconcave glenoid. Because that person, saving that person a substantial operation, uh, either total shoulder with some risk to the glenoid component or reverse arthroplasty, and potentially buying them a decade or more without having to have a total shoulder is, I think, a, a very favorable possibility.
3: Or to the extent that less than forty percent actually needed arthroplasty. No,
2: I, I enjoyed your paper
3: and, and the presentation. Thank you very much for talking to us. Yeah, you're very welcome. My,
2: my pleasure. I will.
4: I would like to add something there. Despite we didn't know if the uh, glenoplasty added to the finally outcome that we got, it's very important to know that these patients are usually. Uh, contraindicated for any arthroscopic procedure. So whether it's the glenoplasty or the rest, the whole package, as Dr. Driscoll said, works. And that is something important because this is a population that is usually excluded of any arthroscopic procedure. So I think that is a, a, a good uh, finding of the study. Yes, that's a good point. Thank you very
3: much.
2: OK, well, great to talk with you. Thanks very much.
0: I mean Gabor tell me one thing so you are in your uh, outpatient clinic yeah you see a patient coming in with uh, osteoarthritis and he doesn't want to have such a prosthesis maybe he's a little bit too young for that and you don't want to do that because you're afraid of early loosening and so on and so on is this something you would consider to do
1: well after this talk yes i will try it i will uh i will follow the uh... I will follow the rules, so I will not jump into it in a in an elderly patient, and uh, I am a little bit sceptic about the B one B two glenoids. But still, if I have a patient who had an osteoarthritis at a young age, who doesn't really want the prosthesis yet, or I am not comfortable with the, with the prosthesis implantation yet. I would definitely try something with the arthroscope. What do you think about that, Robert? Really, I think it's uh,
0: some interest. I mean, I didn't do it yet, but I was really considering it. And um, I think this study is giving us a very good basis to think about whether or not doing an arthroscopic step before prosthetic implantation is um, something we have to do and think about so thank you very much and um i hope to see and listen to you soon gabor have a have a nice day bye-bye
1: thank you you too robert thank you bye-bye
0: This was the SESEC podcast on the paper The Role of Arthroscopic Glenoplasty and Osteocapsular Arthroplasty in the Treatment of Advanced Glenohumeral Arthritis with the authors Jorge Rojas-Lievano and Sean O'Driscoll from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, USA and our special guest today Roger Emery from the Imperial College of London in Great Britain. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Robert Hudeck and I hope to hear you soon. Bye-bye.